I want to add my welcome to that which uh, Cody shared with you a little earlier in the service. Not only you who are here today, but particularly those of you who are joining us online. You all who are here today get a pat on the back and a tip of the halo because it is a nasty cold day outside and it would have been real easy for you to just sit at home under the covers and watch this online like you all are doing. <laughs> but you are joining us online and uh, we are grateful that you are here. You know, last week, uh, Rich introduced this series with, that uh, we're calling Overflow. Cody referenced it. Two years ago, we read our way through the entire Bible. Not every word, every verse, but, but the arc of God's story from Genesis to Revelation. And then last year, we decided to roll our sleeves up and go deep in the Gospel of Matthew and Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And, and as Cody pointed out, this year, we're really going to roll not our sleeves up as much as maybe our pants legs so we can get down on our knees and really practice the, the historic, ancient practices that the followers of Jesus have used for two millennia to access his power, his life, his overflow in them. Now, last Sunday morning um, at the 845 service, I, I was sitting over there with my wife as Rich began this, this sermon series, and he was talking about overflow and the fact that our lives are created to overflow with God's mercy. When he said that, I sat there and I, I kind of looked around to see how that was going to be received by the 845 congregation. And I pulled a, a little note card out of my pocket and I scribbled a note to myself. What I wrote down was, why do our lives not overflow? I knew I was speaking today and I wanted to create that segue from last week to this week. I stuck the card back in my pocket, went through the day. Monday, uh, I got into my uh, study at the church, and I, I pulled that card out with a file that I was using to, to work on this message, and I looked at that note, why do our lives not overflow? Why do our cups not overflow? And I suddenly remembered reading a number of years ago in a book called The Kingdom Within, the author John Sanford talking in the beginning of that book about growing up in... Um, well, he was a PK, preacher's kid. He grew up in the home of an Episcopal priest. Uh, and he said every summer, his family would spend a month at an old farmhouse that they had inherited. And he said it was an old farmhouse. No electricity, kerosene lamps for light, no running water. Uh, they had to go outside, and, and there was a well right out the front door of the house that they used to draw water for their needs in the house. He said the well was absolutely amazing because in season, out of season, that well always had fresh, cool, clear, life-giving water in it. Even in, in the hottest summers and in seasons of drought, when other folks in the area, when their wells would dry up and, and they had to get water out of the lake to be able to drink, he said their well continued to have this cool, clear, refreshing water. He said, modern times caught up with the house. They brought electricity in, put in lights, got rid of the kerosene lanterns, got rid of the gas-powered stove, had an electric range, uh, and they brought in plumbing, and they drilled a new well to be able to access water to plumb the house. They decided not to, to fill the old well in, but 
instead to just cover it up in case the new well at some point just failed. They would still have this well. Sanford says that, that some years passed and curiosity got the best of him. He wanted to see what that well looked like. So he went to the, the spot and he, he pulled the covers off and he looked down in the well expecting to see all that water and it was bone dry. He couldn't understand it because the well had always been filled with water and now it was bone dry. So they asked around, talked to folks with the county extension office and, and talked to well diggers and what they found out was this. This is what he says in the book. A well of this kind is fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets along which seeps a con constant supply of water. As water is drawn from the well, more water moves into it along the rivulets, keeping them clear and open. But when the well is not used and the water not regularly drawn, the tiny rivulets close up. And then he says this, the human soul is like that well. I found myself thinking that maybe our lives in 2024 don't overflow because we've not drawn out of the well of God's blessing and mercy and grace and love and goodness. That instead, we've gone on living our lives and the well is dried up. And it's not just modern-day prophets like John Sanford who, who speak to the, the leaky wells, the leaky souls of our lives. It's, it's ancient prophets as well. In fact, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, well, in the second chapter of Jeremiah, he puts it this way. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. They didn't ask, where is the Lord who, who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and, and, and no one lives? brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests didn't ask, where's the Lord? Those who dealt with the law didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. Prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I'll bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus, that's to the west. Look, send to Kedar, that's to the east, and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder, the word shudder literally means that your hair stand on end. With great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, 
and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I was studying this passage and, and rereading about Jeremiah and his life and his times, I found myself a little astounded at the parallel that I see between Israel at that time in history and your life and my life today. The nation was divided, polarized, fractured. There were external threats that were uh, at risk of ripping the nation apart. And people, as Jeremiah said, had drifted away from God. Wonder why their lives didn't overflow? That explains it. Wonder why our lives don't overflow today? Maybe that explains it. We've moved away from the living water of God's grace and mercy and goodness and love and have dug for ourselves broken cisterns that can't hold water. You see, in that land, which is, is in large part an arid and dry land today, if there is a spring that provides water, you're safe, you're good, you have water. But if you're in a section of the country where there is no spring, what you do is you dig a hole in the ground and you line it, you make bricks and you line it, you seal it somehow, so that when it rains, you can fill water in there. And that way, you have water when there's no spring and no stream nearby. But what God says to those people then is that the cisterns they have dug for themselves have cracks in them, and the water is seeping out. They're not holding on to the goodness of God. They've lost the living water. Sometimes it's, it's not just that our lives are... Our souls are, are, are leaking out. It's that we just don't even let God's goodness get into our lives. I, um, this, this actually happened to me a couple of months ago. I, um, I have a morning routine like all godly people. I get up at an insane hour. I get up about 4 o'clock in the morning, get our black lab, go downstairs, um, wake up the Nespresso machine, put a pod in there to make uh, the nectar of goodness, um, turn it on, let Scout out to go to the bathroom. She goes out, goes to the bathroom, comes back in, take her to the laundry room, I feed her, and while she's eating, I come and um, coffee's ready, and I begin to believe in Jesus again. <laughs> but this particular morning, I, I went through this routine, and I'd, I'd gone into the laundry room with Scout, got her fed, got her squared away, and I'm walking back to the Nespresso machine, and I looked at it, and I went, this is what I saw. It's not a Yeti, it's, it's, a, it's an Arctic. Um, and like a moron, I had left the lid on the coffee thing. And so I actually recreated this at the office this last week so you could see what I had done. The, the thing was open, uh, so some of it was getting in, but I was in the process of creating this mess in the kitchen. And yank the top off real quick, you know, redeem the rest of the coffee. Um, and, and then I looked at it and thought, you know, maybe this is a metaphor for life. It, it's not that we've got these cisterns that, that leak. It's not that we can't hold on to the goodness of God. It's that for one reason or another, we keep the lid on our life. 
We're not letting God get into it. And we need to, we need to do something different. If, if you want your life to overflow with all of the goodness that God has in store for you, odds are every one of us needs to do something a little different. You need to, all right, I'm going to say a dirty word in church. So just prepare yourself. You need to change. <laughs> Allegedly, Mark Twain said, the only person who wants change is a wet baby. <laughs> I thought about that. I used that quote for a number of years, and I thought that was, that was spot on until finally I decided to add what I call Chuck's corollary to this, and that is this. Even the baby that wants to be changed sometimes cries through the entire process. I love the way Cody put it earlier. He said, you know, this is not a solitary sport for us. Overflow is not. We really need to do this in community with other people, whether it's a, a Sunday morning belong community or a small group Bible study, or you pull a group of folks together to take a look at this. Because it, we need to honestly evaluate our lives and recognize that our cisterns are broken. Our wells have gone dry. Our, our cups are covered up. Our souls are leaking. And I think, frankly, that the brokenness of our souls manifests itself in uh, a couple of ways. One, I think there is sometimes a conscious brokenness to our soul that, that's rooted in fear. Because remember, we've all gone through this, you know, we want to say, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but I'm afraid to say that because I just know you're going to send me to Africa. And so we're afraid to turn ourselves over to God, to really live the Jesus way because people may look at us funny. We may have to do that dirty word and change. Sometimes we're afraid and sometimes... I think, particularly for us today, it may not be fear, maybe it's presumption. We think we've got it all together. Life's pretty good. Things are going okay. Yeah, there's stuff in my life, but it's a first world problem. I really don't need Jesus. I don't need to overflow. My life's doing pretty good. Thank you very much. A lot older, I'm getting close to the end of life, then I'll cram for finals and get close to Jesus. In the meantime, I'll keep a little distance. We consciously choose to keep God at an arm's distance. And then sometimes it's not conscious brokenness, it's unconscious brokenness, which I think manifests itself in good old Presbyterian legalism. Look, we're here today. It's a holiday weekend. It's ugly cold outside. Could have stayed at home. You're the folks who don't have a beach house or a mountain house or a, a <laughs> lake house. So, you know, you get an extra mark in the Lamb's Book of Life because you came to church on a holiday weekend. Everything's, you know, you're good people. You know, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go with boys that do. You know, you're good people. 
say your prayers over meals, you're good people. You read the Bible, maybe daily, you're good people. And we get into this trap of thinking, because I do the right things, I'm a good person, and we keep God at an arm's distance. They say confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. I caught myself in this trap a couple of months ago. Every year, sometimes twice a year, I go out to Conyers um, to the Monastery of the Holy Spirit, which has been out there since the late 1940s, I think. And I spend two or three days and nights out there. The monks gather for worship um, 4 a.m., 7 a.m., 12.15, I think it's 5.20 and 7.30. And I go and, and this is a picture of the church there and, and their worship, the monks sit in these stalls on this side and this side and they face one another. And people like me who are there for a retreat um, sit in, in pews back here and their worship, by and large, is simply singing or chanting the psalms. And so I'm, I'm sitting here, and, and I've got the Psalter in front of me, and I'm listening to the monks sing the psalms. And I'm following along in the Psalter that's in front of me. And so much is jumping into my life from that psalm. And I'm noticing so much in that psalm. And, and I'm listening to them and I'm looking at the psalm and I'm thinking, I've read this 800 times. Why is this, why is this hitting me like this right now? And it suddenly occurred to me the pace and the rhythm with which they were singing, chanting the psalm was slow. And I could hear it in new ways. Because in my life, like your life, there's so much going on. It's like, okay, I'm going to read Psalm 93 today. I'm going to read the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Check. Got it done. And, and that legalistic brokenness prevents me from listening to God. I've really slowed things down in my soul since the 1st of December when I came to this conclusion. For exercise, I know you can't tell it from looking at me, but I really do it. <laughs> One of the things I enjoy doing is, is uh, riding my bike. Um, you know, Glenn, you and I have been out on the Silver Comet together. A number of years ago, a bunch of guys uh, got together and gave me this uh, Trek Madone. Boy, that really is dirty. It needs to be washed. Um, uh, 4.5. A number of years, about 10 years ago, I was out on the Silver Comet on a Friday morning. I go out there and on um, Friday, Saturdays, ride anywhere from 25, 30 miles up to 60 miles at a pop. And this particular day, I was out there, man, let me tell you, I was flying. I mean, I was, I was a man possessed. I was tearing up the Silver Comet. I was Lying, I was going so fast. Well, I was coming up to uh, an intersection of the road, you know where the 11 and a half mile mark is in that parking lot? So I'm, I'm coming up to that and I look up to see if there's any traffic coming because I don't want to break my average speed. I mean, I'm really riding fast. 
I look to the left and there's nobody coming and I look to the right and I see a car coming and I, I calculate real quickly if I just act like he's not there and go across, he's going to clobber me and I'm going to wake up dead. So I don't want to do that, but I think maybe I can turn on the sidewalk and go on the sidewalk to that road over there and then cross over to the parking lot and get back on the Silver Comet and not break my average speed. So I turn onto that sidewalk and as I did, I don't know if it was some dirt or some sand or rocks or grass or leaves or whatever, but the wheel, my back wheel just comes right out from under me and trajectory carries me and I just go whammo into a stop sign. Totally kill my watch and break my carbon fiber bike. I pick myself up and I look at it and uh, there's a crack in it. And I think, oh boy, I got another 11 and a half miles to ride before I can get back to my car. So I just really slowed down and, and just took it easy, got back to the car, put the bike on the rack, uh, went to the bike shop, asked them to take a look at it. They said, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I, yeah. So I went home and, and um, immediately started Googling. Well, I found a guy in Brasselton who does carbon fiber race car repairs and bike repairs. So I take it to him and there's a crack right there. He said, yep, you broke it. He said, but I can fix it and give me a couple of weeks. So I go back a couple of weeks later and, and this is what it looks like. And it, he looks at me and he says, now I don't do paint jobs. I said, I don't want a paint job. Chicks dig scars, man. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing that he said to me. He said, this bike is now stronger at the point of repair than anywhere else on the bike by virtue of the brake, what has been repaired is even stronger than it was before. So if you're willing to take a look at your life, and if you're willing to acknowledge that your soul is, is like a, a broken cistern that can't hold water, or that you've put the lid on your life trying to keep God out, or, or you're just kind of wind sprinting your way through our life with Christ. If you can acknowledge that your life is broken, it can be even stronger this time next year by virtue of what God can do in your life through these historic faith practices. Think about it this way. When was there a time when you felt close to God? And not in crisis when um, you'd lost your job or your parent had died, uh, not at the, you know, one of the high points of life, the day you got married or the day the birth of your child, but, but when was there a season in your life when you felt close to God? For most of us, it's probably, you know, like Jeremiah said uh, early in that passage in the second chapter, I remember the devotion of your youth, probably when we were younger. And what was it about our lives at that time when we were close to God that characterized our lives? 
odds are we were either in a, a class or a, a Sunday morning community or a small group Bible study, and it was life on life, people living their life, we living our life, doing it in relationship with one another so that we grew closer to one another. And we drifted away from that. And is that why our lives are like broken cisterns that cannot hold water? Remember what St. Augustine famously said, that for you made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Too many of us are burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. And if we're honest with ourselves, we feel like George Jetson. We want to, we're on the treadmill, and we want to scream, Jane, stop this crazy thing. Because we know that life is meant to be better. It's meant to be different. Our lives are meant not to be ragged, but to be filled with all of the goodness of God. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray together. Father, we confess today that there is too much brokenness in our lives. We have, we have masked over the reality with too much activity. We have rushed through a relationship with you. We have kept you at an arm's distance and all to our own detriment. Forgive us, living Christ, and, and today, Lord, I speak the name of Jesus over every person here. And pray, Holy Spirit, that you will breathe new life into everyone so that their lives may not be full, but be overflowing with your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your love and, and the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, claim every person make them whole, seal up the leaks in their cisterns, take the lid off their cups, and fill them, fill us today, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.